Hi, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Rewrite Motherhood. I'm Cynthia, and I want to start by thanking you for being here and telling you that the ability to make this podcast is such a gift to me. And I hope that hearing the stories of other mothers will be a gift to you too. So before I had kids, I knew that I wanted to be a mom, but I was unprepared for the experience of motherhood. In particular, I was unprepared for the constant state of discernment that being a mother would plunge me into. I've had four babies in about four years, and every step of the way, it seems like I'm faced with new decisions about how I should order my life. As a lawyer, I've had to decide whether I should leave my new baby with a caregiver, what type of caregiver I should select, how long I should stay at the job when I felt really pulled home to my kids, what type of part-time work worked for me, when to return to the practice of law, and when it made sense to have more kids. And behind those questions are even more complex considerations. What is my identity and what does God want of me? What role ought mothers play in their children's lives? And what responsibilities do I, a woman of immense privilege and education, have to the outside community while I'm in a season of motherhood? And that's to say nothing of the the mountain of practical considerations that play into all these decisions. Bottles and breastfeeding, home organization and meal planning, schools and scheduling. In my various stages of discernment, I've talked to hundreds of women, asking them for advice. I've consulted dozens of parenting books. I've journaled, I've prayed, I've laughed, I've cried, and I've leaned on the counsel of friends, many of whom you're going to meet in this podcast. What has been the most helpful helpful for me at all these stages of discernment is simply hearing the stories of other women who have been in similar situations. To learn from them about how they see the world as mothers and how things worked out when they followed their heart. And that's what this podcast aims to achieve, to be a place for women to tell their stories in hopes that you might see elements of yourself in their words. I am so, so excited to introduce you to one of my dearest friends, Christina Squires. Christina is the first guest of this podcast, but she's going to be so much more, a frequent contributor and hopefully a co-host on many future episodes. Christina is a Princeton-educated practicing lawyer of three children ages five and under, married to a talented surgeon in the middle of a heart surgery fellowship. Christina's a force of nature. She's a constant source of inspiration to me, and I simply would not have survived the last six years of pregnancies, motherhood, and practicing law without Christina's constant guidance and friendship. Not only is she a talented lawyer and brilliant writer, I have seen up close that Christina is also an amazing and deeply connected mom, which is what makes her witness especially compelling. Christina is a fount of wisdom, and she's basically a free therapist to all of her friends, especially me. Hey, Cynthia, I am so honored and excited to be here. Me too. This has been a long time coming. I feel like um, gosh, we could have had so many podcasts if we would have just recorded all of our conversations. Yes. In the we, last, we could just turn our, we could just turn our voice memos into a podcast series. Yes. <laughs> Super self-aggrandizing for us to say that at the outset. Um, so no pressure to us. Um, so let's just start in the present. So tell everybody where you're at, what city, what you're doing, how many kids you have and how old they are. Yeah, so I am currently living in Austin, Texas with my husband and three kids. Um, my kids are five, three, and two. We've got a girl, a girl, and a boy. So they're all close together in age, which has a lot of challenges and blessings, as you know. And we are living in Austin because I am doing a one-year clerkship with a federal court of appeals judge, Judge Don Willett on the Fifth Circuit. Okay, and so you're in Texas now, but you're from Miami originally. What brought you to Texas? And I asked that because that's a really interesting part of your story that kind of frames a lot of your decisions. It is. So I grew up in Miami, Florida in a big Cuban family, and I hadn't spent a lot of time outside of Miami before leaving for college. And I left for college 
at the age of 18, like most kids and went to Princeton university in New Jersey. And I, it was a big culture shock and weather shock and kind of a shock all around. But that is where I met my husband, Jack, who was born and raised in Dallas. And Jack is one of those rare people that has been on the same path and trajectory since the age of five. He's known that he wanted to be a doctor and specifically a heart doctor. So our senior year of college, when everyone is scrambling, trying to figure out what to do with their lives, Jack was going to med school and pretty quickly decided to go to medical school back in his hometown of Dallas at UT Southwestern. So when we graduated, we were dating and knew that we were in a very serious relationship, but weren't engaged or anything like that. So he went to Dallas to start medical school. And I actually stayed in the Northeast for another year, working in Philadelphia at a foster care agency, trying to figure out what my next steps were going to be. And during were that Were you guys year, engaged? Oh, sorry. Were you guys engaged? Oh, no, go ahead. I was, you know, I was about to say that we were not engaged yet, but we knew that we were on that path. So I was just always that girl who was never going to make a decision for a boyfriend. And I'm not saying that that's never the right thing to do, but for me personally, I wasn't going to move halfway across the country um, just for a boyfriend, especially when I had no idea what I was doing with my life. So I, during that year was trying to discern what to do next. And I thought about maybe doing social work, but realized pretty quickly that 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 wasn't for me. And so being a lawyer seemed like a very natural thing to do once it even like the idea came up. I had always been interested in politics and policy and love to read and write. And so I took the LSAT, which is the entrance exam to law school and applied to law school. And then in the middle of that process, Jack and I got engaged. And so I knew that trying to do medical school and law school long distance was a terrible idea. Um, I had known enough people who did one of those things, either go to medical school or go to law school and knew that it was pretty all consuming. And so the thought of trying to manage a relationship um, in those kind of really intensive times of schooling seems like a bad idea, especially to start a marriage that way. (laughs) Um, So So I applied to a few schools around the country, but pretty much knew that I was going to go to Dallas to be with Jack and attend SMU, which was a hard decision because I was not from Texas, not from Dallas, obviously, and didn't, I hadn't even never even heard of SMU before going through this process. And I knew it once I started looking into it, it was obviously a good school, but it would not have been on my radar or the school that I would have chosen if Jack wasn't in the picture. And so what do you think about, I mean, a couple things there and we'll get to motherhood in a second, but again, the theme, the theme of doing things for other people and also trying to make sure that it's consistent with your career calling and your own kind of personal sense of vocation. So did you, I mean, what did people think about your decision to follow him to this school in Dallas? And were there people who said, oh, you shouldn't get married before grad school or you're too young to get married or that's crazy for somebody to be in med school and somebody to be in law school and get married. All of the above, yes. <laughs> so <laughs> we definitely, I mean, we are, we grew up in families that valued marriage. And so that part wasn't hard, but I think being married and my parents got married really young. So for them, that wasn't really an obstacle either, but I definitely think some of our friends, some of my relatives and some people I think questioned why we were in such a rush. And to me, it didn't feel like a rush. It just felt like the natural next step. And I think actually going into that kind of crazy intense experience together was really beneficial. And to have that commitment to each other, I think helped ground it, ground us while we were going through those studies. And I think it's really easy when you're in an an intense job or an intense graduate school program to let that program or job become all consuming. And when Mm -hmm. you have somebody else, you know, whether it's a spouse or, you know, even more so a child or something like that, kind of, it gives you perspective and helps you, I think, see what you're doing at the moment doesn't have to be all consuming. Like you can be committed to it and you can do it with excellence without letting it overrule your life. And that applies to even people who aren't married, right? I'm sure Mm -hmm. you saw this in grad school too. The people who did nothing else but school didn't do very well. (laughs) You know, that can only last so long. 
and your focus is just on what you're producing or what you're studying because it is so internal and self-absorbed has a negative connotation, but I think we all know that we are better people when we're looking outside of ourselves. So in that way, being married young and being married during that difficult time, I thought was actually very formative and helpful to us both. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of what um, Justice Ginsburg said about being a mom. She was a mother in law school when her husband was in law school. And she talked about the like life-giving benefit that going from law to a child to law to a child, it was like, by the time she was done with her child, she was ready for, you know, it was like, she needed a break. And so she would practice, you know, study the law. And then she, when she needed a break, she'd go be with her baby. And it was like this perfect, perfect thing, um, which we'll get to because um, I'm sure, is, is it correct to say that you thought oh, I'm going to, we're going to wait to have kids until after law school, but, but what happened? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that was the plan to wait to have kids until after law school. But then we had a surprise pregnancy about a year into our marriage. And it was the spring of my second year that I found out that we were pregnant. And it was actually two weeks after I had run for the position of editor, editor in chief of SMU's law review. And won that position. And then two weeks later found out that I was pregnant. So it was absolutely unplanned, uh, absolutely (laughs) wonderful. And the timing, I think in most people's eyes sounded terrible, but for a lot of the reasons you just said about Justice Ginsburg actually worked out, I think to my, my benefit. Like I have no doubt looking back that it was a crucial part of me finishing law school and me being able to do it well was having our first baby Lucy. So what, so put yourself in your shoes, finding out you're pregnant, you're in the middle of this, you know, you're in the middle of law school. I mean, what did you, what were, tell, give the honest range of emotions and range of freak out because if there's somebody going through this right now, I'm sure it's nice to hear that it's it, like, now it's all roses. I mean, you have yeah. an incredible five-year-old daughter, Lucy, who's brilliant and beautiful and the world would not be the same without her. But what was it like? I mean, find, you know, finding this out. It was really scary. And I, I, you know, when I look back, I remember even being scared to tell our parents because I, I almost felt like the kid in high school who did marijuana or something and was about <laughs> to go tell their parents that they smoked, which is I know like an absurd comparison, but it just, and we were married and happy and loved, obviously loved each other, but it still felt like this is not what people do, right? Like people don't, <laughs> you know, first of all, people don't get married right out of college and people don't then go to grad school and have babies in the middle of it. Like, what are you thinking? Which was a perfectly natural question for people to ask. And, um, you know, the answer was we really weren't this, you know, like I said, it wasn't planned. And so I think there was a lot of fear and anxiety of not just, you know, this is crazy, but how am I going to finish? And am I going to finish, right? Like, Mm -hmm. am I going to be able to finish law school? Am I going to be able to take the bar? Am I going to be able to work? Um, how is this all going to work out? And I, I look back at those questions now and they felt so real and powerful and overwhelming and daunting. And it's amazing though, how that those questions and that fear as a mother has popped up so many times afterwards. Right. So, you know, then I, it was after I was like, okay, I made it through graduation, but now there's no way I can take the bar exam and and watch my baby. And then it was like, how am I going to start at a law firm with this baby? And then I was like, how am I going to be a lawyer with two babies? How am I going to be a lawyer with three babies? And I think at some point you just stop asking the question. You stop Mm -hmm. asking, how am I going to do this? And you start asking, you know, let's, or you start reframing it as let's figure out how we're going to do this. You know, Mm -hmm. we meaning you and your spouse. And so it's been really powerful for me to look back and think about how that question has changed because it was definitely at the beginning, just how am I going to do this? And can I do this? And I've stopped asking it that way when life has thrown us a ton of curveballs, whether it's been changes in our jobs or childcare situations, which I'm sure we'll get to, but then also just adding kids and things are just constantly changing when you're having kids and when you're young, a young professional. And so it, it's been 
it's been really helpful to look back and say, like, I can, I no longer have to ask that question or be worried about that question of, can I do this or how can I do this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. One, one thing that I'm thinking as I hear you say that is you and I've talked a lot about our experiences going through pregnancies and the vulnerability and the newness and the lack of preparedness. And then when we reflect on our immense privilege, we're like, wow, we feel so much um, solidarity and like compassion for people who their issue is not, oh, maybe I won't be able to take the bar exam this summer. It's, oh, am I going to be able to like feed my child? Um, so, and I think, you know, that's something you and I have talked a lot about and it kind of plays into one of our considerations, um, which is, you know, how do you make sure that you're using these gifts that you have to help other people? So we're going to, I'll put a pin in that and we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, so you have, so you have Lucy, who's the most perfect, wonderful child. Um, and in my eyes, and um, you take the bar that summer and then you started right at Gibson Dunn. So describe, well, first of all, let's talk about um, the opportunity that you gave up because you had Lucy, what that was and um, your, your perspective on it now. So during law school, one of the most prestigious, if not the most prestigious thing you can do right after is clerk for a federal judge, which is the job I described at the beginning of this is what I do now, but I'm Mm -hmm. five years out of law school and it's not very common to do a clerkship that far out. Usually people do it right after they graduate. So when I found out that I was pregnant with Lucy, I knew that that probably wasn't going to be an option for me. And that's because my sweet husband, Jack, when we found out we were pregnant, decided to take a year off of medical school. So he actually, my last year of law school took a year off to do research so that he could work during the day and then watch Lucy at night. Because at that time, SMU still had night classes, which I don't think they have anymore, but they did at that time. So I took almost all my classes at night. So I watched Lucy all day and then Jack worked all day doing research and then we flip-flopped and I went to class at night and he watched Lucy. So number one point of that is shout out to my husband for even considering that. And it was his idea. And I'm just so grateful that he was willing to pause his career for a year so that I could finish school and finish up. And then Mm -hmm. throughout that year though, we had this conversation about clerking and I knew that it wasn't going to be a possibility for me, at least in the near term future, because we had this brand new baby. And then because Jack took a year off, he was going to have to go back and finish medical school for a year. And the clerkship salary is a government salary. So it's very low compared to what private practice is. So for us financially, we wouldn't have been able to swing it with him needing to finish up med- medical school um, for me to take that kind of pay cut. And so put the dream a little bit aside and thought, well, we'll just deal with that maybe in a year or two when he finishes up. But then we found out we were pregnant with another baby. <laughs> so <laughs> the dream got deferred again. And really mm-hmm. at that point, I thought it had died because Jack was also in your fourth year of medical school, you go through this awful process called the match where you fly all over, all over the country doing these interviews for your residency. And then a computer algorithm tells you where you're going for your three to five year residency. And he was doing, is doing a five-year residency for surgery. And so we were waiting for the match to happen to find out where we were going to land. And so in the country, like where we were going to be the next five years. So I, I couldn't even apply because I didn't know where we were going to be. We were about to have our second child. And I really thought at that point, you know what, this would have been really awesome and something I would have loved to do, but that's not going to work for our family. And I was sad and disappointed, but I was really happy at the firm I was at. And I was obviously happy in our marriage and with our growing family. So I thought Mm -hmm. it was the death of one dream, but I was getting another dream. Mm -hmm. And then obviously the cool thing about this is that this dream has come to fruition years later in really a perfect time. What, what was it like, um, you know, clerking later on in your career and why is that a good example of kind of I guess God's providence and all this. 
So I will say that I, I have seen so many benefits of actually having had four years of litigation experience before clerking. I think I have gotten so much more out of this clerkship now um, because I came into it understanding what it was like to work on a case at all the stages of, of the life of a case. And so not only have I gotten more out of it, but it's just been an incredible year for our family. So professionally, it's been amazing. And everybody who does a clerkship knows you develop this amazing mentorship with a federal judge. You get to work on a very wide breadth of cases from criminal to immigration to you know, labor and employment to constitutional issues. I mean, it kind of runs the gamut of across a huge swath of topics. And so um, you're, you're, professionally, it's just an amazing opportunity. But for our family, the year has been so incredible, especially with COVID going on. It's just been a year to move to a new city, kind of take a step back. My hours are definitely different and less than they were in private practice. And my husband has once again, taken the year off mm -hmm. for me to pursue something. And so we've gotten a lot of intense family time this year, and it's been such a providential break in what I felt like was the freight train we were on for the past three years with mm -hmm. Jack in his first three years of residency, working 80 plus hours a week, me starting out at a big law firm and us having three kids in three and a half years, there was zero time for reflection, zero time for intentionality. And it just, mm -hmm. it started to get to the, to the point before we moved to Austin that I was asking a lot, like, is this what we are supposed to be doing? Are we on mm -hmm. the right path? Because it feels so chaotic. And so mm -hmm. the timing of having the clerkship this year, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't have asked for anything sweeter. Um, it's been such a gracious gift from God to have this year when the whole world was kind of shut down to take a step back and just say, yeah, this is what we want to do. We haven't decided to make any different decisions after this year, but it's been so sweet and precious to have that time to slow down and reflect on the decisions we were making and to just sort of reorient the direction we were sending our family and to be more intentional about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's, it's probably, you know, you can disagree with me or not, but it's, it's almost like it's the perfect time for you to clerk and you dutifully set that opportunity aside for the sake of your family. And it has now come back up again in a way that's even better for your family than it would have been years ago. So that's really cool. Um, so but let's talk about in between. So you graduate, you graduate from law school, you decide not to clerk. And for three years after that, you worked at Gibson Dunn and had two more kids. So for listeners who um, aren't in this big law firm world, it is uncommon, I think fair to say, for young women associates to start their career at a big law firm like Gibson Dunn with a baby. So what was that like? And um, let's start talking about childcare. Like what, what was your calculus? What did you think about what was on the table and why did you decide what you decided to do? That's a lot, a lot of questions. Sorry. Packed in there. <laughs> uh, objection, compound question. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So lots to unpack there. I, so first of all, yes, it's very uncommon to work at a big law firm with a child as a young junior, what they call a junior associate when you first start out. So that alone felt very strange coming into that experience. But I will say it was incredibly helpful for me to start that job with a kid because I was able to put boundaries in place right away that I don't think I would have put in place. Otherwise, I think I really would have been, and it's another one of those examples. And I feel like this is woven throughout my story with the clerkship, with having Lucy as a surprise is that we think we know what timing is best for our lives and what order we should do things in, but we really have no idea. Mm -hmm. And so I'm so thankful to God for interrupting my schedule in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, but that was by having Lucy by clerking later because start, I'm just naturally kind of a workaholic. And I mean that in not that I neglect people in my life, but I will just sacrifice sleep or mm -hmm. other things that are necessary to have a functioning existence too, because I just am naturally 
wired that way to work really hard. And I get up really early. I've always been an early bird and I've just always worked hard my whole life. And so I don't know any other type of existence and it's actually uncomfortable for me not to Mm -hmm. be doing that. And so I think I would have gone, had I gone into a big law firm with no kids, I would have been one of those. I have no doubt. One of those associates billing crazy high hours. Mm -hmm. And I've actually seen this happen to a number of women at the firm they go in like that and then they have a kid and you just can't function like at that level anymore. You cannot Mm -hmm. be billing that many hours. And so they kind of revert back to what is a normal amount of billing. And everyone sees that as a step back in their career, which Mm -hmm. is such a shame. It's something to talk about, you know, in its own right. But for me, I think it was such a blessing to go into that job with a child because my priorities were already aligned. And it was very clear to me from the beginning, like, I'm willing to get on this many cases with this many people. And I'm going to draw the line there because I'm going to be home to spend a significant amount of time with my child and my family will always come first. And so to have that tug of my heart there from the moment I walked in the door was really helpful for me. Would you say that you wear your at the firm you wore your identity as a mother on your sleeve. I tried to, and it's actually something I want to be more intentional about doing when I get back because I so appreciated watching other people do this. And I mostly saw it from men and I have heard, I mean, I even had somebody tell me directly that as a woman, you shouldn't do that, that men are allowed to talk about being fathers at work because people will applaud them for that. But women aren't because they will be seen as not working as hard or having priorities that are outside of the workplace. So a man can say like, Oh, I've got to leave. I can't meet, go to this meeting at five o'clock because I've got to leave. My daughter has you know something at her school, but a woman can't say that. And I think this person was offering that advice from a, a genuine place of mm-hmm. should, like, like try to protect yourself essentially. And I have no doubt that different assumptions are made about men and women and their commitment to work based on their, you know, their parenting role. And that those assumptions are different for men and women. I don't, I think that that is absolutely true. Most of the time, obviously there's always exceptions, um, but just generally speaking. And so I, I, I really admired when I saw people just be upfront about their kids and I tried to do that. And I want to be more intentional about doing that going forward. And I never, I never received when I did do it, I never received pushback. People were just very supportive. And I think if you're, you, if you're going to say it, people have to know too, that you're going to work hard and do things on time and do them well. And of course you are right. Like you don't, don't make people believe the stereotypes that women are less committed to their jobs, but on the same on the same hand, like you can't ignore the fact that you're a mother and doing that is detrimental to you and to the people around you. Mm-hmm. And, and as you get, you know, as you grow and you get to be an older associate at the firm and in a number of years, you'll be um, considering whether, you know, to stay for partnership. Do you think it's even more important for you to like talk about being a mom to put others at ease? Oh, absolutely. And I think part of it is just that there's so much that mothers do that go unseen and just the, you know, you get a lot of attention when you're having a baby, wherever you work, you know, hopefully you're in a welcoming environment. I shouldn't say that generally. I know a lot of women are in environments where having children is not a welcomed thing, but at least for me, you know, there was always that everybody was very excited when you were pregnant and when you came back from maternity leave, but then there's kind of like a drop-off where people seem to just forget you had a baby and your Mm -hmm. life fundamentally changed. And so I think being vocal about that is really important. So there were really chaotic days that I had where I remember one in particular where our nanny got sick unexpectedly. So I had to stay at home, but I had a few conference calls that I couldn't get out of and couldn't move. And I was still very junior at the time. So I was, you know, the note taker and I had to be like engaged in these calls. Mm -hmm. And I was home with Lucy and Anna and thank God Anna was napping, but Lucy like yelled for the bathroom, like, mom, I pooped. And I realized I wasn't on mute on the call. (laughs) And I was like, oh my God. Um, but all of those, like every time something like that happened, I thought it was really important to be vocal about it because people just have no idea what you're doing. And I think we as moms discount ourselves so often and try to 
compensate for something that people aren't even knocking us for. We're just knocking ourselves for it. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, we say like, I'm not working as hard as so-and-so, or I can't do all of that because I need to be home for my kids. But that's not taking into account everything you're doing as a mom that's working outside of the home. And so I was very vocal about times that were stressful. And I would like laugh with the partners about it. Like, Hey, you know, when I sent you that thing I typed up yesterday, my child was screaming and I was rocking them while I was doing it. So, you know, and it's not to say like, Oh, aren't I so awesome. You should be applauding me for still getting that done. It's to say, I'm going to take this thing that was invisible and bring it out to the light because otherwise, how are people going to know how hard this actually is if we're just pretending it's not difficult or we're glossing over the stuff that does make it difficult. Mm -hmm. And speaking of one of the things that can make it difficult or easy, you mentioned your nanny. So let's talk about that. I mean, how you've been through, you know, as your friend, I know all of the ups and downs (laughs) of (laughs) the, you know, nannies and sicknesses and moving and everything, but walk us through kind of like what you did initially and what ended up changing and just some of the highlights there. Yeah, that's a great question. And I (laughs) want to preface this by saying, and you've hinted at this, like I am incredibly fortunate to have a job that pays really well. And so I can afford high quality childcare, which I know is not the situation for the vast majority of working moms and Mm -hmm. finding quality childcare is very difficult in no matter what field you're in, but especially if there are not a lot of options to you. So we were very blessed to have options. Um, but even so, you know, I, I think it's important to recognize the ways that we're fortunate, but I'm also, I am not a believer in comparative suffering. And so I think mm-hmm. perspective is important, but comparative suffering is unhelpful. And so for us, you know, we were able to have options. And at first I, before going back to work, never even thought about having a nanny. I thought we would do daycare because I just did not grow up with people that had nannies. And the one girl I knew growing up that had a nanny, it was a very stereotypical, her parents were never home. Uh, so that's just what I thought a nanny was. I thought like a nanny was a replacement mom or for a, for a mom who didn't want to actually be a mom, which is a horrible thing to say. And I'm sure that family that I'm talking about, that was not the situation either. So, uh, but that was well, such an antiquated term too, you yes, know? Yes, exactly. And so, or I, you know, when I think of nanny, honestly, what I thought of was like, um, what was that British show that everybody loved? Downton Abbey. Danny Mc- oh like, yeah. You know, yeah. Where you have these like really wealthy people who don't even work and like have people taking <laughs> care of their children. Yes. Yes. Um, and so to me, I would, you know, that option was off the table, but then we started looking at the daycares and then it, that didn't seem like a desirable option either, especially the first year. I just felt more comfortable with Lucy being at home. So we actually, through you, got connected to another wonderful family in Dallas and ended up doing a nanny share, which to me was the best of both worlds because I, Lucy had a little friend and I didn't feel like it was just this woman and her at home, um, even though that situation works for a lot of people. But for me personally, it felt better that there was a little friend there with her and a friend that she's still really good friends with to this day. And so we did the nanny share for about a year, but then both moms, me and the other mom got pregnant. And so it wasn't going to work anymore. So we ended up keeping the nanny and we had her for three years and she was absolutely wonderful, adored our children, took care of our whole family and was such a blessing. But then when I got pregnant with Henry, my first day back at work after maternity leave, she was diagnosed with cancer. So things just went into total chaos and it was a really stressful few months of not having consistent childcare. So my sweet mother-in-law stepped in, but her father was dying of cancer at the time. And Mm -hmm. so she was very torn, like wanting to help us, but wanting to be there with her dad. And obviously we wanted her to be with her dad because the days were very short that he had left and the number of days. And my mom was flying in from Miami all the time to help out fill in the holes. We used your nanny a few times. Like Mm -hmm. we were just patching things together, but it was by far and away the most stressful period of me being a working mom. I just felt like a crappy mom, a crappy lawyer, crappy everything. And every day was just absolute chaos. And I have this very vivid memory (laughs) of rocking Henry. He was screaming at the top of his lungs. Anna and Lucy were down for a nap and I was trying to write this affidavit 
for this big corporation. <laughs> and the partner was emailing my crazy and he had no idea what was going on. And I was sitting there rocking Henry typing with one hand as fast as I could. And he emailed <laughs> me in the middle of it. It was like, by the way, you're doing a great job. And I just lost it crying because I was like, you have no idea. <laughs> And his words meant so much to me. And he had no idea what was going on in my life at the time. Oh. And it was just, it was a good reminder that the, the things we're so harsh on ourselves as moms. And I was sitting there in that moment thinking that I was just a total disaster in every mm -hmm. facet of my life. And that's not at all how anybody else was viewing the situation. That was mm -hmm. solely my misperception. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Well, that's an awesome story. And it, like you said, it, it also reminds you the power of some words of affirmation. Yeah. <laughs> and like, you never, <laughs> you never know. And that was the, totally the Holy spirit probably guiding yes. you to send that message. There is a never that time. a wrong time. There's never a wrong time to encourage somebody ever. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, when you look back, you know, I'm sure there are some moms listening to this right now who are either in that survival chaos mode where things are just not lining up or they've been in that before. When you look back at that period of time, is there anything that you like think that you were learning through that period of time or any kind of like tips for other moms going through times like that? I think one thing that immediately comes to mind is just that sometimes it's really good to be forced to remember that you can't do it all. And I think some of the times that I have learned the most have been the times where I have felt the least, not pr productive, not the right word, but like I felt my vulnerability and my weakness the most, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. And so I think we have to be reminded that, you know, as moms, you know, people are always calling, you know, moms that do a lot of things, either have a lot of kids work outside the home, inside the home, whatever moms are always called like super moms or, you know, just, mm -hmm. I think people just generally recognize that it's really tough to be a mom. Mm -hmm. And so I think we sort of wear that as moms, as a badge of honor, right? Like even like the lack of sleep and we like the things that we use to congratulate ourselves are like really ridiculous measures of, <laughs> of mm -hmm. things that aren't helpful, right? Like, oh, I only had two hours of sleep last night. Look at me like <laughs> making this, this amazing Pinterest birthday party, right? Like that's what a stupid way to measure whether you're a good mom, but we do that to ourselves all the time, use these weird external measures. And so for me, that season was really helpful to just have kind of all of that veneer of I'm a super mom stripped away and be mm -hmm. like, no, I need a lot of help. And this only works if I have a lot of help, whatever that looks like for you, whether it's family, some combination of family and childcare, or if you don't have family in town, just finding like a good network of other moms or babysitters, whatever it means for you, just the recognition that I can't do this alone. I shouldn't do this alone. It's not good for me to do this alone. And nobody ever asked me to, I think that that last question was really important for me personally, as someone who just takes on way too much and feels the burden of kind of holding everything together was just like, nobody asked me to do this in such a hardcore way, right? Like nobody is watching, waiting to give me a medal for <laughs> being the most, you know, martyr-like mom in the, in the city. <laughs> Right. God's definitely not, you know, no, um, absolutely not. Yeah. And, and when you were in that phase of life, when your kids are out of a routine and they missed, um, the person who had been their nanny for a while and they're going from person to person and mom's, you know, stressed out. Did you, was part of your, it was part of the chaos, like worrying if your kids were okay and do, were you worried like oh my gosh I'm screwing up my kids and how did you like work through that and when you look back now are your kids okay and I of course I know that they're not only okay they're thriving but you know how do you look at that and was that part of the whole issue yeah. So yes, they are okay now. And I think many times throughout my journey as a working mom, my deepest fear has always been, and it still pops up today. I'm just better at shushing it is I'm screwing at my kids. Right. And I think 
it's kind of like my default when things start to spin out of control. I'm like every, everything that is going wrong <laughs> to me and our family just gets blamed on me being a working mom. Like yeah. if my, any child has a bad attitude, anybody's even sick. I'm like, this is because I'm a working mom. <laughs> you know, <it's> that, <laughs> and it, like, I took me so long to even realize that voice was in the back of my head, that kind of, I think every mom suffers from mom guilt, right? You hear that term all the time, no matter whether you work outside the home, inside the home, part-time, full-time, whatever. But like the default for me in times of stress was always, this is because I'm a working mom. And the, the underlying principle of that, that was even more implied and unsaid, but said was if you didn't work, things would be a lot better, right? So the Mm -hmm. corollary of like, this is all your fault because you're a working mom. And if you didn't work, none of these issues would be happening, which now I can look back and be like, that was absolutely ridiculous. Right. Like my, I, my nanny getting cancer and us having a few months of upheaval <laughs> was not like, you know, because I like made this diabolical decision to work outside the home and screw everything up. And so, um, yeah, my kids are absolutely okay. I, it's good to realize that you need help. And I also think though, that the times that I thought my kids were not okay which never turned out to be true, were not during those months where things were chaotic. They were actually during months where things were much smoother. And I think that's because for me that having a nanny was a blessing, but it was also a very hard relationship for me to navigate. And I'm not sure that I ever found the perfect way to do it. Things definitely got easier as communication got better. And this is all to say our nanny was absolutely was wonderful. It was nothing she did on, on her part. It was just for me as a new mom, navigating what my priorities were, what I cared about, what was worth bringing up and instructing our nanny to do and just missing my kids and being honestly just jealous that somebody else was with them. Um, mm-hmm. Just working through all those emotions. Those times were actually much harder for me than the few months where we had like the absolute chaos mm-hmm. um, in terms of feeling like my kids were okay. Because even though things were chaotic, I was home a lot more like, patching up, you know, like having Mm -hmm. to watch them and work at the same time, which felt awful in one way, but at least I was there, which I think I beat myself up a lot before that for just not being there during the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's dig into that a little bit. And so for everybody, um, the Squire's nanny recovered from cancer. I just realized we should say, Oh yeah. (laughs) She is amazing. She's actually working for, um, another family now who's a mutual friend still crushing it as a nanny. Um, but what is it like, like real talk? Okay. So having a nanny, if, if you're, you're blessed with that ability and you find someone, which we both did at various stages and and have, um, is incredible because it's so convenient, right? Because you can, you don't have to pack up for daycare. The nanny can stay a little bit later. If you're home later, you can run home for lunch. Um, and then the, all the obvious benefits of one-on-one attention, enrichment activities, kind of having um, some control over social life. And then, you know, for me, you know, our nanny is still very much in our life and comes um, several times a week. It's like having an extra grandma or like an extra aunt or uncle. And she's at all of our birthday parties. And it's, I've always viewed this as like this incredible blessing to have like an extra person in our community, um, in our, in our family, really. And she travels with us and and everything. It's just such a great thing, but real talk, what is it like, like going to work and leaving your baby with another woman? Awful. (laughs) It's awful. Um, and I, I remember when our nanny started, I had her start a few weeks before going back to work. And I call my mom the first day bawling. And I said, I'm never going back to work. I started Googling other jobs. I was like, legal jobs you can do from home with no experience. (laughs) (laughs) And obviously like no results were popping up, but I was really struggling. And I think watching somebody else take care of your child is very, very difficult. Even if it's a person you trust and you know is good and um will you know be beneficial and help your whole family out it was it was very very hard thing for me to adjust to and i you know the adjustment period was pretty short because our nanny was so wonderful it really was just about a week or two of feeling just really torn um about having this other person watch her, her child especially because you don't know them that well at the beginning which mm-hmm. is uh, just a weird thing 
Mm-hmm. And so that definitely got easier, but for me personally, and I know a lot of women that this is absolutely not true, but for me personally, all of our kids are in school right now in a little preschool. And I'm very thankful that they had a nanny when they were young, but for me, them being in school has been a lot easier as a mom. And I, I think part of that is just, I never figured out really well, the whole communication thing with our nanny, or maybe I just struggled watching our kids with another woman. And again, I don't regret a single day we had her. She was absolutely awesome. But for me, that relationship and dynamic was very hard, even up until the very end when we absolutely adored her and loved her. And I knew she loved my children. It was a a really hard thing for me to navigate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you think it's, um, like, because we as moms have this internal sense that we should be kind of primary in our kid's life? Or is it just like, if there's one person who's primary better be me. I mean, what, what do you think's kind of behind that? Because I, I mean, I will say I totally absolutely relate to that. And I think what, what happened for me, and and you can tell me if you agree, just agree this in your life, but after a few weeks, I realized that just because somebody was with Justina, my oldest, um, during the day, like it didn't change. Like she still knew that I was her mom. I think I was worried that when I left and that if somebody was with my baby for like a long number of hours that I don't know, she would get confused. And so I was highly anxious. And I remember I would come home after a long day, not to talk too much about myself here, but to add some color, you know, I come home after a long day and I would just go straight to Justina and I would just put her in my arms and I would just like, please nurse. Like I was afraid that she would like forget how to breastfeed if I was gone. Um, and I would just have this sense of relief. And as time went on, I became much more confident in my relationship with her, even though she was with a caregiver. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a great point because I think my what made that relationship difficult for me. And again, it had nothing to do with our nanny was at the beginning, just my insecurity as a mom and a hundred percent agree with what you said. Just thinking that like, she's going to think this other person's her mom and I have abandoned her. And that was never the case. Not even one day. It was Mm -hmm. very clear that I was her mom and I was able to spend so much time with her. And I I was also very intentional though, about not being at the office too long, which meant that I stayed up late or got up early working, but it was really important to me to be intentional about my time with Lucy and then with our subsequent children too. And so I, cause I think it's, it's also one maybe negative thing of having a nanny is that somebody's already in your home. Your kid's not like in a school that you feel a need to like rush and pick them up. It's, I think it's a lot easier to linger. And if Mm -hmm. you have a project due or, you know, some reason to stay at the office, even if you love your kid and want to be home just because they're at home already with somebody, with someone in their own home, I think it's easier to maybe not get, not be in such a rush to get home. And not that you have to be in a rush every day and feel guilty. Everything, just caveat everything I say, obviously, Yeah, <laughs> but I think, um, Anyway, so I was, I'd say that I'll say like, I was very intentional about not being in the office too long, which meant that I made other sacrifices of not having evenings to myself or not, you know, having to wake up early and work, but that was really important to me. So, but the fears, what made the relationship with a nanny complicated definitely changed over time, starting from just insecurity of me as a mom, and then just kind of transforming to me wanting to be this primary person in the home, like kind of directing our home life and feeling like that was really hard to do with somebody else present. And it didn't matter who it was just for me personally, having somebody else in the home, all those hours was hard for me to establish like what, like my Mm -hmm. matriarchal role in the home. And maybe Mm -hmm. that was because of my personality or whatever. It, It really had nothing to do with our nanny. It could have really could have been anybody, but for me, that dynamic got very hard and was increasingly unsustainable for me and feeling confident as a working mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you and I talk about, and again, we, we caveat a lot of what we say in the, that, gosh, we sure have a lot of um, resources and opportunities and privileges, but like you can, you can over, you have too much help, you know, yes. sometimes, sometimes yep. the best thing that you can do as a mom is just soldier through. And it's much like other things in life where you try to avoid 
suffering, you try to avoid feelings and sometimes you just need to work through it. And so even those times you're talking about where, um, you were, you know, your nanny was sick and you had these crazy arrangements. When you look back at those times of vulnerability and being kind of alone and soldiering through, those were really some of the sweetest times when you learned the most and bonded the most with your kids. Um, so I think that's really neat. And, and I just want to say, you know, one of the things that to me makes you a super mom is the fact that your husband, who I can personally attest to is very supportive and he's brilliant and he's an exceptionally talented, um, person. And also he's multiple times in his very prestigious career. He's taken a year off to support your, you know, you and your career and your family, but when he has been in his certain times of medical school and his residency and fellowship, he's had to work insane hours. And so you frequently are by yourself. And, you know, that's one of the reasons we became close, right. Is because, you know, you'd be by yourself and we'd get the kids together and do dinner together. But, you know, what, like, how does that play into your story? The fact that gosh, on how many nights a week, four or five nights a week, you're by yourself. Yeah. And a lot of weekends and pretty much every morning. (laughs) So (laughs) it's, you know, I, I think there's a lot of things I draw from that. And number one, like you said, I think there is absolutely such a thing as too much help. And again, I'm sure some women would listen to that and think I was absolutely crazy (laughs) and say like, what a snob, like how nice to be able to survive without help. But what I mean by that is you, I think you use sometimes these resources as a crutch. Um, and there are times that it it keeps you from being, I think, as sensitive to sometimes what your, your kids needs or being even sensitive to how capable you are. And I think Mm -hmm. we just have so much self-doubt sometimes as moms say like, Oh, I can't, how can I go? I have to go to the grocery store, but I've got like these three little kids here. There's no way I can do that. I need to call a babysitter. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that's great. And you should do that. But for me being alone with them so much really taught me like, I am so much more capable than I thought. And being forced to kind of do these things by myself with the kids was wonderful for me and for the kids. And so having Jack work the hours he did, it gave me a lot of alone time with the kids. And you and I have talked about this because I know one of your struggles before you left the law firm was that you would get home and it was sort of like divide and conquer, right? Like Grant would take one kid, you would take another. Mm -hmm. And so you went to bed like, oh, I missed out with that kid that Grant Mm -hmm. was with that, you know, wasn't with me. And for me, that wasn't an option. There was no dividing and conquering. I was the only one there. Mm -hmm. Um, And on the one hand, yeah, it was very difficult, but on the other hand, it was such sweet times of family bonding and really actually empowering because it made me see like, no, I can, I can do this. I don't need a bunch of adults around. And were there many times where I wish at least somebody else was around? Yeah, for sure. But on the whole, it was wonderful as a mom to have that really intense bonding with my kids. And so I'm like incredibly grateful to see that side of my husband being away, but the blessing that came from that for my motherhood. Mm Mm-hmm. It's really moving to hear us talk about it this way, because in the moment of witnessing you be billing 50 plus hours a week, have three children, three and under a husband who is working 80, 90 hours a week. I was just thinking, how is she doing this? And the weird thing about looking back on it is that it was kind of all part of the design. Because, you know, if you, you know, if Jack was going to be away all the time, I don't know if you would have survived without work to be with the three, three and under for 24 hours a day all by yourself. Right. Yeah. And I, yeah, I tell people that all the time too. And, you know, when they ask like, how can you do this? Or when they're discerning, like, I don't know that I can work outside the home because my husband has a crazy career, but for me, and I think it's perfectly sensible to say one of us has to take a step back at certain points. And we we've done that, right? Like we're doing that right now with my husband Mm -hmm. taking a year off. But for me, having work was incredibly helpful for my mental health and my physical health and everything else, because I spent so much time alone with the kids in the mornings, after school, 
on weekends that I think if I had to do that all day, it would have created a lot of bitterness and resentment, but because Mm -hmm. I had my own thing to work on and space away to do something that wasn't running the house, which was what I was doing a lot of times alone at the other hours, it was actually very meaningful for me and helpful for me to keep myself grounded and have a separate identity from being a mom and from being a wife to have work outside of the home. Mm-hmm. It's crazy how it all worked out. So, so mental health. So what does that mean to you as a mom? This could be a whole, I mean, all of these topics I've, so yeah. I'm having a hard time asking questions, Christina, because everything you say, I have like five questions about it. So I'm sorry that these are so, these questions are like very broad and you're amazing for even tracking me on any of this. Um, that's why you're the co-host of this. And that's why this is the beginning of a long project to dive in, but let's just really, you know, quickly touch on mental health. So what's your conception of mental health, like as a mom and like, what are some highlights of your journey and making sure that you're like in a good mental place? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I, I have a lot of thoughts on this and I think I didn't realize I was struggling or maybe I wasn't struggling that much as a mom until we had our third. And I don't know what it was. And I have surveyed just out of total curiosity, so many moms about this. And I've heard a different answer from every mom. So I've heard so many people say the, you know, zero to one was the hardest transition. One to two was the hardest transition. Two to three, three to four after four, it doesn't matter. You can have 10 kids, you know, and I think all of that is not true for more than any single person. Right. (laughs) So for me, the third was a really, really hard transition. And I can point to a lot of obvious reasons why, you know, they were really close in age. My husband was in the middle of surgery residency. I was working at a big law firm, but even more than that, something just shifted in me personally. And I felt like I was becoming a person that I did not like. I all of a sudden was experiencing extreme rage. Like I (laughs) remember in particular this one time, like Henry was only like eight weeks old. I was on maternity leave and Lucy and Anna were just being normal toddlers and they were running around screaming. And I yelled at them. I mean, to this day, it brings tears to my eyes. I was like, like, think of like Batman in his Batman suit with his Batman voice. Like, I don't know what came over me, but, and I like the terror in their faces. And I just had too many moments like that after having Henry, where I just had to sit back and be like, something is wrong. Like I, I can no longer, whatever tools I was using before to handle the stress of being a mom is, are not working anymore. And so Mm -hmm. I actually made the decision to go to counseling, which was the best decision. One of the best decisions I've ever made as a mom. I just, again, it was really just because I no longer had the tools to be the mom I wanted to be. And I just was so angry all the time. And so I started going to counseling and it was absolutely transformative just to have an hour to myself every week to just pay somebody to listen to my problems. Mm -hmm. And again, you want to talk about privilege and having options. And I totally realize that a lot of women don't have that option, but for me, I think even if it would have been a financial stretch to do it, which it was, was at the time, like it was worth every penny because I needed that hour. I had no other time to sit and process and I felt too selfish doing it. And so I needed the accountability of someone else, a professional to hear mm-hmm. me out and help me work through things and to, to be the mom that I wanted to be because I was no longer that person. Mm-hmm. Was one, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of things that you learned about in that process of kind of self-discovery and taking care of yourself, but was one of the things that you learned that like you weren't being kind enough to yourself, was that a big part of it? Or what are some of the things that you learned and that you've, you've taken from that experience? Oh gosh, so many. And I'm mm-hmm. so grateful to all the counselors out there who are doing this kind of work and that people are more open to talking about these things. Now, I definitely was a person who thought counseling was for sissies and <laughs> people just needed to like pull themselves up by the bootstraps and just soldier on. Um, and so it was really humbling for me to get to a place where those tactics, those um, military <laughs> tactics were no longer working. Yeah. Um, and so I learned a lot. I mean, one of the things I learned was just about negative self-talk and how important it is to be aware of it. And I think even just taking the time and if you can't, you know, afford counseling and 
you, you need other options. I think even taking time to journal, like carving out time to me, that was one of the biggest benefits was just carving out a time where I was being reflective on my life instead of reactive to it. So I just got to a place where things were so crazy that I felt like I was not in control and I was blaming everything else. And I was just in reactive mode, like survival reactive mode. I was not, I didn't feel intentional. I didn't feel, um, like I was doing things with purpose. I was just reacting. And that's why my emotions were so often anger because I was just like this, you know, boiling pot at all times. And so just to equip myself with the tools to be more proactive than reactive was incredibly helpful. And I think one of the things that made me so reactive was just the negative self-talk, the constant blaming myself for whatever our kids were going through, whatever tantrums mm -hmm. they were throwing and blaming, you know, mentioned this earlier, just blaming everything on being a working mom. Like everything that went wrong was just like, this is all my fault. And so kind of figuring out why that voice, that refrain was so loud in my head all the time. And what was at the bottom of that was incredibly helpful. And one thing that my counselor asked me to do was list out all the things that my work contributed to our family financially. And then also just in other aspects and just going through that really helped take away that voice. And so I think number one, recognizing the negative voices that are in your head, what they're telling you, how often they're telling it to you and sort of why you think those voices are saying those things. And then, you know, secondarily telling, explaining, counteracting those voices with explaining to yourself why those things aren't true. That entire exercise was really helpful for me and something I use to this day when I kind of feel negative self-talk creeping in. I love that you are, I mean, you're, you're my kind of paradigmatic example of really, really successful, um, committed lawyer, career woman, but also unbelievable mom open to kids. Um, I've had a ton of kids in the last, in just a short period of time you know, you're, you went to Princeton, you were at the top of your editor-in-chief of the law review, you're all these things. And yet you have a gaggle of young kids and you've done it all at the same time. What would you say to a culture who says you can't do that? Or says that a culture that says that you have to wait forever to have kids. And, you know, what do you think, what do you say to that? Like, how, how do you feel about your life kind of being a and I'll say it like your life is a counter testimony, a counter example to that message. Yeah. And I wish I could say that I was trying to intentionally live a counter cultural <laughs> life, but I think like we've mentioned many times throughout the story, a lot of these things were happenstance, what I would call divine intervention, you know, God's plan. But, and I, I think the biggest takeaway for me from that is just that what culture tells us our interruptions to our lives, culture views, right? Like kids as interruptions to your career ambitions or interruptions to your marriage. Even, um, the interruptions for me have been complete reorientations, not interruptions. Mm -hmm. And I think so many people think, well, if you have a kid, that means your dreams are dead or you can't do X, Y, and Z, or you lose this freedom. But and I, there is a loss, um, in having children, but what you gain is so much greater that the, it, it, it feels weird to even call it a loss, right? Like what mm -hmm. I lost was my selfishness. What I lost <laughs> was like the things I lost were things that I were like th things that I misplaced my identity in, right? Like I lost my absorption and work and, and productivity being my badge of honor. I lost, you know, I'm losing, I shouldn't say lost, right? Like mm -hmm. I'm still a very self-absorbed, selfish, sinful person, but the things that I have lost along the way have not been dreams or hopes or desires. They've been negative qualities or things about things that I was wrapping my identity in that were absolutely not true and were incredibly toxic. And so for me, having children and pursuing big dreams at the same time has just been an amazing reminder that when we are in sacrificial relationships, whether that is marriage or children or both, it makes, or even being a good daughter or sister or friend, right? Like you can apply these things, even if you're not married or with kids, mm -hmm. the bottom line is that people matter, relationships matter and living a life in service of other people is way more fulfilling than just going after things yourself. And I think 
our culture is obsessed with telling people like, just do what feels good for you mm-hmm. and find your passions and go for it. And like, that is not fulfilling, right? Like you're going to very quickly realize like you are running up a ladder that you don't know where it's going, but maybe if you keep running faster at some point, you'll stumble upon fulfillment, but that's not the way that life works. It's these very sacrificial relationships where we are dying to ourselves and serving others. Um, And I, I even take that approach to work when I am, I feel my best at work when I am serving other people on our team. When I feel like I am mentoring the younger attorneys, when I feel like I am serving the partner on the case and making his life or her life easier. And um, that's when I feel most fulfilled and the same is true at home. And so I think mm-hmm. I would just encourage people not to feel like children or family or relationships in general, whether that is serving at your church, whether that is being involved in your community, like there's so much more to life than your career vocation. You have many vocations. And only when you are, I think are living all of those out and holding them all in this kind of beautiful, chaotic tension, can you be truly fulfilled? Wow. Well, now everyone is going to want to be your best friend and I'm going to have to send them (laughs) off (laughs) No, (laughs) because they, your halo is showing. And, um, I just don't even have any words, uh, to add to that, but that's a great way of wrapping this. And it's a great way of kicking off this project about losing ourselves in other people and somehow it all working out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, you're the best. Um, thank you. Thank you so much, Christina. Thanks for having me. Can't wait to be back soon. Bye-bye.